0: Hey guys, what's up? It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. Today I'm going to be talking to you about episode 209, Je Suis Pray. But before then, I have a few announcements. First, I just want to remind you guys that you can listen to the Sassnack Files on multiple listening platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Castbox. And Amazon Music. If you like what you're hearing on any of those platforms, please feel free to leave a rating and review. Also, if you haven't had a chance lately, make sure you head over to the Sassanac Files blog to check out all the latest and greatest deets on that. This week I posted an article called Back to Blowing Rock. As many of you know, I went to Blowing Rock, North Carolina almost two weeks ago now. It's kind of one of my favorite weekend locations now, actually. It's a gorgeous little mountain town, and I wrote all about my experience and some recommendations if you do decide to go there. So make sure to head on over and check out that blog entry. Also, we've got a few things going on on the different social media platforms. So I just started an Instagram read-along this week. So if you follow the Sassenec Files on Instagram, you can find different excerpts and vocabulary, all of that good stuff on my Instagram stories. I'm going to try to do one or two chapters a night, so you can keep up that way. Also on Facebook, I've got a Best Episode of Season 2 contest going. I've got a bracket all laid out, and you can vote nightly on the newest matchup until we get down to the finals. We already did season one, and we had a blast. The wedding was the winner of season one, so it's official. The wedding is the best episode of season one, and we are working on season two now. So if that sounds like something fun that you want to get on board with, head on over and like the Sassanac Files on Facebook And keep your eyes open for any new contest posts there where you can vote and have your voices heard. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into talking about 209 Je suis prêt. So I really did like this episode. It's one of those that I kind of have to turn off my book reader (laughs) switch. So I just kind of like, Chelsea, this is the show, not the books. And I can actually appreciate what they did here with all of the non-book storylines because it doesn't have any greater effect on the story outside of this episode. So it's not something that's going to massively affect the plot later. And it definitely had a lot of book content in it. So overall, I felt it was a pretty good episode, not, you know, Dragonfly and Amber material. That's kind of my bar for everything. But Uh, Just We Pray is definitely one that I can appreciate. It's got uh, some good humor, some good plot movement. We meet some new characters and we get some old characters back. So all around kind of just soup for the soul. (laughs) First thing I want to talk about is all of those old characters that we get back this week. It's the return of the Highlanders. So we've got Angus, Rupert, Dougal... They're all back and ready for a good time, ready for some Jacobite rebellion. Spoiler alert, that doesn't end up so well, but (laughs) we're working through it, right? So one of my favorite parts of this episode happens early on. They're all coming back, all giving Claire these huge hugs and kisses, and... And they're like, well, where's Willie? And everybody's just kind of standing around, staring at each other like he died. And you can tell that's where Jamie and Claire are going. And, you know, Jamie steps into Claire and, like, brings her into him, ready to comfort her and, like, needing her comfort as well and everything. And then Rupert's like, he went and got himself married. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's like the horror of it all. And Claire's like, you know, it might do you all some good to get married. And Myrta and Angus and Rupert just all look at each other like, this chick's freaking nuts. And Jamie's just smiling, nodding along, like agreeing with Claire. And, (laughs) you know, one of those instances where marriage actually worked out very well for both of them. And they're definitely supportive of it to a bunch of terminal bachelors. I just find it hilarious. So that was a great way to kick off the episode. And then we get the start of the whole Dougal-Jamie complex relationship drama that's unfolding in this episode. It is a lot, guys. So we're going to break it down along with some other topics like the tensions between Claire and Dougal, Claire's PTSD, and the meeting of our newest character, John Gray. So let's get into it. First up is Jamie and Dougal, and this is probably going to be the majority of the podcast because it's pretty much the entire episode. <laughs> when Jamie and Dougal last saw each other, it was off screen, and Jamie and Dougal were together at Dougal's wife's funeral and his estate. And when Claire got arrested for witchcraft with Galas, Jamie left Dougal to go rescue Claire. And that was the last time that. Jamie and Dougal saw each other. Now, granted, it's not the last time that we as viewers saw Dougal because we got to see some interaction between Claire and Dougal in the search, but things are kind of, they've always been touch and go with Jamie and Dougal. There's a real competitiveness there. That primarily stems from the whole column wanting Jamie to be the Laird of Clan Mackenzie when he dies instead of Dougal. And so there's that element of it. But then Dougal also is fond of Jamie as a in a father-son type of way. Which is how Graham McTavish likes to play it. But there's always this edge to everything. And so even when we first get Dougal back in the episode and he says, oh, Jamie, you know... When I heard that you had joined the Jacobite cause, it was like my own son was taking his first steps as a man. Which on the surface is like, oh, he's a proud papa, you know? And then I got to thinking about it. And it's kind of insulting in a way, because with everything that Jamie's been through, he's far and above, like, always been a man as far as this series is concerned. And in the 18th century, like, boys became men very early on. You know, by 15, 16, they were considered men and able to make their own decisions and get married. Obviously, their legal majority was later than that. But culturally, they were viewed as mature pretty much as soon as they could sire children. And so to say that Jamie, who's now 24, 25, is just now taking his first steps as a man, could be construed as fairly offensive. So there's that. It's always that undercurrent of two-facedness from Dougal, I guess, if if you want to put it that way. And it just kind of continues throughout this entire episode because Dougal's like, okay, well, we're here, so let's get going. And Jamie's like, no, my men aren't ready to join the army yet. We're going to train them. And he's like, oh, we can train them on the march. And Jamie's like, oh, they didn't march. They walk and caper about, but they didn't march. (laughs) Poor Jamie. He's just kind of been saddled with the responsibility of all of these men knowing that they're kind of marching toward disaster at this point. (laughs) And he's doing his best to make sure that as many of them walk away from this as possible, which I think is really Jamie's main story in this episode. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But when Dougal agrees, he's like, okay, yeah, we'll make a a proper batch of Highland soldiers and just kind of walks away. And then he walks out of frame and you see Jamie look back at Myrta and Claire and they are all equally... Suspicious of this sudden agreement to just okay, yeah, whatever you say, Jamie, because that is not the Dougal that all of them know. And I think Jamie wants to be optimistic because he feels like since he and Dougal are united in a common cause now, that maybe they can get past all of their crap that's been going on for the better part of his entire life. But tensions are high in this episode, and that only continues as we see Jamie and Myrta continue to try to train these men into proper soldiers. Jamie has so many great moments in this episode, and I feel like the underscore of it all is Dougal ruining everything. It's kind of insane. So, for instance... Myrta's having a hell of a time teaching these men how to form up and march and about-face all of the proper formations for an army of that time. They all know this is the expectation, but the men just aren't motivated in that way. And Jamie has this fantastic speech. I even wrote it all down. He says, foolishness and games. That's what you're thinking. No reason to learn to strut and ponce about like the Redcoats. We're Scotsmen. We're brave. We're strong. We've got God on our side, so why should we waste time with all this shite? I, I was like-minded. Then I went to France, and I became a soldier. I saw what a modern, well-trained army can do. Oh, it's a pretty sight at first, to see them all marching together in their neat rows and columns, music playing, banners waving so pretty, and you want to smile. I laughed, too, the first time. Then they fired the first volley. First, you see, flash of metal in the sun. Together, as one, an entire line of men raise their muskets, aim, and let loose. The musket balls come tearing across the field like a sheet of metal rain, cutting down men left and right without mercy. The sound of gunfire rolling thunder across the hills. By the time the last of it fades, the second volley is already on its way. I realized it takes more than courage to beat an army like that. It takes discipline. It takes a well-trained soldier, an army of soldiers. Now, if we have the discipline to stand together, to march together, and to fight together, then by God, I can, we will win together. Talk about some motivation, right? (laughs) Um, He's really getting these motivational speeches under his belt. And he has such fantastic dialogue in this episode. And then just when all the men are nodding along and like getting the gravity of the situation, Dougal and his band of morons come charging down the hill with their swords, freak everybody out, and they stray like a bunch of panicked horses. So it's like Dougal just undid everything that Jamie did to kind of wake them up. Ugh, it just irritates me. <laughs> and that's the motif of this entire episode, right? Is Dougal ruining everything that Jamie is trying to do. Showing that he can do it better, he thinks. So Jamie takes Dougal aside after that, and they have their first confrontation of sorts. And he says... This is how I'm going to do it. These are my men. And if you want to fight alongside the Frasers, you will get on board with this strategy or feel free to take your men and leave. He kind of just puts his foot down. He says, you know, I've been tolerant with you up until now because you're my uncle and I respect you, but these are my men and we're going to do this my way. That's kind of Dougal takes a step back and he's like, okay. But you can tell it's not the end of it. And it's really not. This keeps happening. He keeps challenging Jamie's authority. Next, we see him bring this group of 10 men into the camp. Just past the sentries, just waves, says, hey, how you doing? And brings 10 random guys into the camp. And Jamie, thinking about the safety of not only his men, but his wife sleeping upstairs, you know, he's like, what the hell are you doing? And Dougal's like, you know, we've got to conscript as we travel. Like, we're going to need every able-bodied man we can get to win this war. And Jamie's like, no, I'm not taking anybody who doesn't want to be here. Because never forget that Jamie knows how this is potentially going to end. And he doesn't want the blood of innocent men on his hands. He wants everybody fighting this war to be fighting it because it's what they believe in, not because somebody is forcing their hand, because that's a waste of life, in his opinion. And that's the last thing he wants to be responsible for. So here again, they're butting heads. And Jamie kind of takes this step further now. He's like, okay, so we're going to punish the men that were Posted as sentries because this is not okay. Like, they endangered the lives of everybody in this camp. So Ross and Kincaid kind of get it. Six lashes apiece. And Dougal and his men are made sentries now. He's like, okay, it's now your responsibility to make sure that no strangers get into the camp. Because basically, you got to sleep in the bed you made. You're the one that made it abundantly clear that our security was not safe around our camp. So guess what? You're the one in charge of security around the camp now. So I'm going to leave it there because all of these topics kind of come together in the final few scenes. So we'll like visit that scene by scene. Obviously, there's this ongoing tension between Dougal and Jamie. When Dougal sees he's not going to make any ground with Jamie and convincing him that he's there for the right reasons and blah, 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 he goes to Claire and he says, Well, you know, I've been thinking about Jamie's situation and he needs help. You know, trying to play on Claire's sympathies, which is just really so conniving, I just can't with this guy. You guys know I have nothing but contempt for Dougal. I think he's a two-faced rat. But this was a great scene between him and Claire and really goes to show how honesty between any two people, especially husband and wife, goes a really long way. Because Dougal says, well, you should just try to convince Jamie that I can help him. And Claire's like, "Why on earth would I do that?" And he said, "Oh, because of our agreement, you know, the one where I agreed to take care of you as my wife, and you agreed, if Jamie died at Wentworth, you know that one." And Claire's like, "Um, he already knows about that. Like, thanks for trying to blackmail me, Dougal, but I already told him." And she's like, "I share everything with my husband." And he knows about your offer. And Dougal's like, oh, and he took no issue with it, like challenging her almost. And she says, none. He knows why I had to do what I did. And Dougal goes, well, he's a better man than I. (laughs) And Claire just looks at him and says, truer words have never been spoken. (laughs) (laughs) Like, <laughs> I'm so glad she said that in the moment because all of us watching are thinking the exact same thing. Jamie is twice the man Dougal could even think about being. So the fact that Dougal's the one that comes out and says it, yeah, it's, it just makes me chuckle. But, I mean, it's all really summed up in that very first scene with the return of the Highlanders, isn't it? Where she says, oh, it wouldn't be Scotland without you, Dougal. He really just makes Scotland, doesn't he? Him and his men, they are the embodiment of the setting that we have come to know and love in Scotland in the show. And, spoiler alert, when they're all gone after The Rising, it really doesn't feel the same. As we get into season three, like, yes, we're back in Scotland, but it's not the Scotland that we knew and loved. So I feel like it says something about the great job that all of these guys do with their characters, you know, Graham McTavish, Stephen Walters, Grant O'Rourke, they all do such a fantastic job bringing these characters to life. And we get attached, like we look at them as an extension of the setting of the show. So I really appreciate all of their work i th- I think it brings a lot to the show to have them, and it's so good, even if Dougal does annoy the piss out of me like it's so good to see him again, you know, all of them after being in Paris and all the crap that happened there. It's really good to see some familiar faces again, so that kind of outlines the issues with Claire and Dougal, and then we've got. Claire's PTSD which this is one of the things that was not included in the book and that if I have all sides of my brain switched on the show watcher and the book reader they kind of fight back and forth with each other but for the sake of this episode I'm just gonna like gag the book reader part of me and talk directly about the show so I think that as far as the show is concerned, it was a great tool to use for illustrating the struggle of this. So I think that this episode is a very Jamie heavy plot. It's mainly about his journey and his struggle with Dougal, but we have this underlying current of something going on. You know, there's something there bothering Claire and we're not 100% sure what it is but you just know it's there from the beginning of this episode it's fitting because in the very first episode we get that flash of Claire in the field hospital in Amiens working to save this guy's life as he's having his leg amputated you know all of that jazz we see that And we know that Claire was a nurse in World War II. It's mentioned several times. But we don't really see it past that first little blip in Sassnack. It's kind of fascinating because then we also get that allusion to... Her PTSD in Through a Glass Darkly when the fighter jets fly overhead and Mrs. Graham is talking about how, oh, I think there's going to be another war with Russia soon. And Claire just loses her mind and says, there's always going to be another fucking war, isn't there? Like, this is all compiling into what we know of Claire subconsciously. We're kind of just, at least I am, cataloging it all away so that by the time we get to this episode, it's like, Okay, yeah, so this is where we're going with this. Because Claire served in the British Army as a nurse for three years, I want to say. And from there, she went to the Highlands and all of this crap happened to her. And now she's fighting another war. It's literally been like three years between wars major wars. And she never really had time to digest what happened to her. She recovered and the war was over and she came home and she was dealing with everything with Frank. And it's like she said, she closed the door on that day and just let it go. She told herself that there was nothing that she could have done and there's no sense in dwelling on it. And so she kind of just let it go. And I think this is very representative of how post-traumatic stress disorder works. Because you can be going along like you're fine, you know, and do a very good job of compartmentalizing and going about your everyday business. And then something happens and it just slams into you like a freight train. And you can't avoid it. And it's just there in your every thought and your every move. And that's what's happening with Claire. You know, she's done a great job of compartmentalizing this, but as the men train and she's thrown into this military camp environment, the the firing of guns constantly and having to give medical attention and advice to all of these young soldiers, it's adding up for Claire. And she's feeling all of these deja vu moments that really culminate in her guilt and she's almost got survivor's guilt in a way all of these memories are kind of pushing in on her because she is thinking about private lucas and corporal grant and how they were they were just these young men that were putting on a brave face and trying to get by, you know, hoping that it was going to be enough and in the end it wasn't. They ended up dying terribly and Claire really felt helpless through the whole thing. You know, she was trained to be a nurse and help people. That's her calling. That's who she is as a person. And that's one thing I think that she realized in World War II that is again being thrown in her face that It doesn't matter how smart or how quick or how prepared she is, like in the greater scheme of war, she's just one person. And so I think that, above anything, is what is bothering her, what's triggering her PTSD. She's trying to be strong and put on a brave face. And we see that in the very first scene that she has with Jamie, just the two of them. When they're in the attic and she's kind of been having these flashbacks and she's almost got a level of depression about her and she's sitting in the attic like we all do after a long day just kind of sitting there in complete mental and physical exhaustion and Jamie recognizes that something is wrong and he asks her he's like are you okay and she's like just a long day a lot to do you know blowing it off because she knows How much Jamie is dealing with, and she doesn't want to add to that burden, I feel like. So she's trying to beat it on her own because she's an independent woman and she doesn't want to add to someone else's problems with something that she sees as something she should be able to deal with on her own. So Jamie thinks that this whole thing is purely about the stress of what's happening and that she's worried about the coming battles and everything. And he's doing his level best. You know, he kneels down and he says, whatever happens, I want you to know we'll get through it together. And I'm going to make sure that you're safe. Thinking that that's what she wants and needs to hear in that moment, not really understanding what's going on in her head, because this is the one thing she hasn't really been honest with him about and told him completely. And she just looks at him and says, I'm fine, Jamie. And leaves it at that because it's like Myrta says later in the episode, you know, she's not normally a closed mouth person. Like normally if you ask her what's wrong, she's going to tell you. And Jamie turns to him and says, I did ask. And she said she's fine. This conversation, not to get off topic, but... This conversation between Jamie and Myrta was really good for me to see, I think. Because you know that Jamie and Myrta are close and that they have a really strong bond as godfather and godson. But with Brian having died several years ago, Myrta really is Jamie's father figure. And to see him go to Myrta for advice and be like... Claire's out of sorts and I'm not really sure what to do and you know he's like I did ask and she said nothing's wrong and he was like well you know it might take a little bit more than asking to pry it out of her this time so just to see that advice really it's hard for me to explain these moments but it was gratifying to see in a lot of ways that's kind of how I felt like it was good to see their relationship. Especially where as a book reader, I was expecting this to go with Myrta dying at Culloden. I was really happy to see these character building moments to where it was going to be like, oh, I miss Myrta. Like, I'm so sad. And then with what happened, obviously, it was kind of a moot point. But that's where I thought this was leading up to in the finale. So looking back on it, it really was just a gratifying scene between Myrta and Jamie kind of just having a having an honest conversation about relationships getting advice from his dad for all intents and purposes so anyway so getting back on track claire finally reaches her breaking point and she has a full-on panic attack like she blacks out she's having these flashbacks of what happened what's really bothering her they were on the road going from the field hospital to somewhere and they were at attacked by Germans, her and her driver and Corporal Grant and Private Lucas were all ambushed. And the car goes past a landmine and flips over and ejects all of them. And the only person that seems to be killed is the driver. Private Lucas was very badly injured, it sounds like. He's across the road from her and Corporal Grant, but he's screaming and crying for his mother and asking for help, and then Corporal Grant going over to try to save him, gets shot. And this particular scene, it really, like, just clicked with me this episode. So we're constantly on Claire's ass about being so stubborn and not doing what she's told. Jamie tells her multiple times throughout this series, like countless times, to stay put, stay where you're at. And you think it all literally comes back to this scene, guys, because before Corporal Grant goes to try to save Max Lucas, he tells her to stay put and she does. She nods at him and she's like, "Okay." and he says, I'll be back for you. And he tries to cross the road and gets shot down and she's stranded in the ditch, helpless with nothing, nothing that she can do whatsoever. It all comes back to that moment because the last time that she stayed put and did what she was told, she was left stranded in a ditch. And she tells Jamie as much, you know, when he's like, I understand where you're at and you don't need to be here to fight this war. I will send you home and you can be safe at Lollybrock. It's okay. He's prepared to do that. And she tells him. I'm not going to ever lie in that ditch again. I'm not going to be helpless and alone if there is anything that I can do about it. Because it's one thing when she was helpless and alone and afraid and it was just her, you know. But now she's going to be helpless and alone, stranded at Lollybrock, wondering if Jamie and Murta and Rupert and Angus are going to come home again. That's where she's at. And she's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not ever going to be stranded in that ditch again, Jamie. So I really just kind of got it in this episode that we give her a lot of shit for not listening to Jamie and not trusting him. But the last time she listened to and trusted someone when they asked her to stay put, it didn't end well. So that's kind of ingrained in her, I think. And I will view all of this stuff in a much different light especially when I rewatch season one with all the stuff that happens there every time that Jamie tells her to stay put and she doesn't. I will kind of view that differently now. So food for thought, guys. But uh, yeah, it was really good to see that scene between Jamie and Claire. And now they're 100% on the same page. He's perfectly aware of what she has gone through in her past, especially in World War Two, And he can kind of understand her and her actions on a on a better level, I think. So that was good that they both got to share that. So that's Claire's journey. And then we've got Jamie's journey, which is a pretty good one in this episode. He's really struggling to find a way to make sure all of these men are prepared in the best way possible for what's going to happen. He doesn't want to send a bunch of ill-prepared men to fight and die. These are his tenants. These are the men that he grew up with, that his dad knew and loved. He feels a responsibility towards them. And so he wants to make sure that they're going to face the coming battles with as much preparation and skill as possible. And then you have the frasers of love it the few men that haven't deserted are left and he's got his responsibility to them as well jamie's really feeling that and i think this episode is about him struggling to grasp how to be a good leader it's really easy to forget how young jamie is he's probably about 24 years old in this episode as mature of an individual as he is He's still very early on in learning how to be the best version of himself and be that version that is best for the men he's responsible for as well. I think we first off see that in the motivational speech that I read earlier. He's kind of just stands and watches these men who are just rolling their eyes and doing it, going through the motions. He is using a skill that a lot of leaders use in saying, you know what? I have been where you're at. Let me save you some time and impart a bit of wisdom. This is what I went through. And you can see it working. Jamie is an extremely charismatic person. He's imparting this wisdom to them and they're laughing, but they're hearing what he's saying as well. He's coming into his own. I feel like in this episode, he's really grown a lot throughout all of season two. And I think he probably grows the most as a person in season two, just from point A to point B, where you see him in Through a Glass Darkly, through where you see him in Dragonfly and Amber, he really matures and grows as an individual. And so you see kind of that part of him coming out in that dialogue, that monologue that he has with his men. And then you even see it developing more when he's learning how to deal with Dougal and just his whole conversation with, look, I've been lenient with you because I respect you as my uncle, but this needs to end. And just constantly ramping up the level of discipline that he has, not losing his shit at the first sign of trouble, but gradually ramping up the harshness of it then we see the punishment of Ross and Kincaid. It's not something that Jamie wants to do, but he recognizes that as the leader of a military outfit, he has to put his foot down and he has to be seen as the leader, not Dougal. And so that's why he did this because Ross and Kincaid are viewing Dougal as an authoritative figure. You know, if he says he can bring men into the camp, then who are we to question him? No, they need to see Jamie as their absolute and unquestioning leader and that nothing happens without his say-so. So that was the whole point. It wasn't necessarily that they put the camp in danger, which they certainly did, but that wasn't the point of it. It was to make all of the men that were being punished and that were watching to recognize that Dougal is not the leader of this army. I am. So there was that. And then I think it all comes to a head after the incident with John Gray, when, again, they're huddled around the wagon and he's saying, you know, who was on watch, all of that. And Dougal steps up and he says, I was. Dougal is completely prepared to be lashed like Ross and Kincaid were. And then Jamie's like, you know what? No. It was my order for unshielded fires that drew the lad to us. And it was my carelessness that put us all in this situation. So. I'm going to take the beating this time. And it kind of wakes Dougal up, I think. He's like, what are you doing? Dougal was prepared to take the beating and become some sort of martyr, I think. Dougal also knows Jamie better than most of these men. And when Jamie takes off his shirt and shows his back to these guys, like, it was saying, I know what this is like. You know, I have been there. I have been disciplined. And I get it, but we all have to take what's given to us and respect the system. That's what this is saying. So when he takes the lashes, he's also, he gets six lashes for the unshielded fires and 12 for his carelessness. So Ross and Kincaid only got six apiece. Jamie is taking the harshest punishment. He took 18 lashes and he's saying, I hold myself to a higher standard because I'm your leader and I'm in charge of you. And if I fail, we all fail. So I need to be held accountable for my actions as well. And by doing that, he earns the respect of his men and even Dougal in a way that I think he had not previously had. But to say that he let it go, what Dougal did um, by failing utterly to secure the compound would be overshooting the mark because when Jamie and his men are preparing to go to the English camp and raid their cannons and Dougal's like, okay, where are we going? And Jamie looks at him and says, you're not going anywhere. (laughs) Somebody needs to stay and guard the camp. That's Dougal's punishment. Jamie knows now that it's not necessarily about handing out a punishment It's doing what's going to be most effective for the person that you're punishing. So Jamie knew that by having Dougal flogged, it wasn't going to do any good. What was going to hit the mark the most was keeping him from the fun and keeping him back from the fight because that's where Dougal wants to be. He doesn't want to be back guarding the camp, but you know what? He's got to do it now because Jamie has all the men in his corner after what he did with the lashing. So it's a case of a master chess game between these two and also Jamie growing as a leader. So I felt this was a fantastic episode for him all around. And I think that kind of leads to that final scene when they're on their way to meet up with Prince Charlie's army and. Jamie says, Dougal Mackenzie, will you do the honor and ride ahead to alert Prince Charlie of our presence? And I think Dougal's gratified to do that, but it's at Jamie's giving. Like there's that line between the two now where Jamie is in charge and Dougal is a soldier. And so Jamie's going to be fair in how he behaves, but Dougal has to respect his authority. So that is all ironed out by the end of this episode. And I thought that it was a great arc to have over the course of a 50-minute piece. But one thing that I saved for the end because I was very excited about this episode was Outlander Universe, let me introduce you to Lord John Gray. So he's introduced as William Gray, Second Son by Count Melton. But if you've read the books, you know that it is Lord John Gray that he becomes a massive character later on in the series. I absolutely adore him. And from the get-go, we know that this kid is different. And we see that in that he's extremely brave. He's only 16 years old when this happens. And... He's literally willing to go through torture and die before he gives away any of the secrets of where his army is encamped or anything like that. But what cracks him is when a young English lady's honor is put into question. And, you know, all kidding aside, because Claire and Jamie did really set him up. It speaks to his character a lot, and Jamie does not forget that moving forward. he never forgets this first encounter that he has with John Gray and this kid that they chose, I don't know his name, I apologize, but he really does a good job, and he does look a lot like David Barry, who gets cast to play him later in the show. but um, I thought they did a really great job. He's just such an honorable guy, right even I mean Jamie broke his arm and threatened to kill him but at the end they left it with jamie saying i give you your life i hope you use it well and john says i owe you a debt i would greatly prefer not to but since you have forced it upon me i'll be forced to discharge it in the future like he takes his honor very seriously as I think a lot of men did back in that time. But this sets up this whole other storyline of coincidences and happenings that really set up this series moving forward. So it was a great introduction, loved seeing John, and I think... It's so crazy because there's actually quite a bit of an age difference between John and Jamie. They end up being, spoiler alert, really good friends in the future, but it's always so easy to forget that there's like nine or 10 years between them, especially when they both mature. And I guess 10 years really isn't that much time in the grand scheme of things because, you know, once you both mature and are living your life, it's basically just a comparison of life experiences at that point, right? Ten years seems like a long time when you're young. (laughs) But throughout this whole thing, you know, Jamie, by this time in the Highlands and across England, has this reputation as Red Jamie, as John says, the unprincipled and traitorous rebel. (laughs) The Scottish army on a whole had a reputation of just raping and pillaging as they went, which was not the case at all. And I think we definitely see that in uh, this encounter with John that they were all playing into his expectations, especially Claire. And so when she comes down and she sees that Jamie's about to press his white hot Dirk to John's face to torture the information out of him, Claire's like, Oh my God, I have to do something. And she thinks quick and, She uses these keywords that her and Jamie have either, like, used in past arguments or spoken about in teasing or whatever. And she's like, leave him alone, you sadist. And Jamie knows. Like, he's quick-witted enough to know that she is playing a game and that he needs to play along. Because it was made pretty clear in the books and not so much in the show that Jamie never really wanted to hurt John or to kill him. He was going to do what he had to do to get the information from him, but he didn't want to kill him because he's a boy. You know, he's 15, 16. He's not, as far as Jamie was concerned, it wouldn't have necessarily been honorable to kill him because he was just doing what he thought was best. And so Claire kind of gives him an out. And by doing this, they trick him into giving him the information and send him on his way but i really did enjoy this scene (laughs) especially when claire's fighting with jamie who's you know being a bit (laughs) rough with her quote unquote putting his hand up her dress and whatever and she kind of knees him in the crotch and he's like (laughs) okay Like, what the hell? This was your idea, remember? Why are you kicking me in the nuts? (laughs) Anyway, so I really overall thought that was a good scene, and it was so good to have John introduced to us in season two. Overall, I did think this was a good episode, and can't wait to see where it ends up in the season two rankings. So... With all that said, that about wraps up what I have to say on 209 Je we pray. Of course, I have my quote of the episode, which is a Jamie quote that says, a man that fights for his own beliefs is worth 10 men who are forced to fight for someone else's. I really liked that. And I feel like there's a lot to that. And that, you know, it's it's so true. Somebody that doesn't believe in something isn't going to stick up for it and fight for it and dig their heels in like someone that does believe in it. So, very poignant. And then, of course, I really liked Dougal's quote too, which is why it's my honorable mention when he says, Perhaps you're right about me. I do love my reflection, but make no mistake, I love Scotland more. And I would give everything I have even my life, to see a steward back on the throne. I feel like that sums up Dougal. Like, he's a very manipulative person, but I really do feel like he's a patriot as well. Those are my quotes of the episode. And then performance of the episode, I think this might shock a lot of people because I do feel like Katrina did a good job in this episode, but she didn't blow me away. Like, I feel like she could have, and she has in different Outlander episodes. I think that this one went to Sam Hewen. I felt like the way that he portrayed Jamie's arc and the different qualities of him and his internal struggle to deal with all of these things was top notch. And he did a really good job, especially in the scenes with Graham McTavish when they have this like underlying like alpha male testosterone thing going on. I thought that that was on point. So I have to give performance of the episode to Sam Hewen. All right, well, now that my opinions have been stated, let's get to one of my favorite parts of the episode, which is hearing what you guys have to say on the podcast. My first comment is from Margie Stock Ward. She says, I believe that Claire's PTSD was a great storyline. She had a dreadful experience during the war, and even the strongest of men have fallen prey to this. She showed great courage by continuing on. Jamie's leadership continued to grow after confronting Dougal. Dougal never had Jamie's best interests at heart, only his own. Jamie came to terms with everything. Absolutely. That pretty much sums up, in a nice little nutshell, what my entire (laughs) 15-minute podcast was about. Um, Jamie really came into his own and kind of recognized how to move forward, that Dougal was being manipulative and that he needed to put his foot down. I really appreciated that. I thought that Claire's PTSD was well-placed. Although, you know, it could have gone without it. It's one of those things that I think it enhanced the episode, but it wasn't like if it had not been included. I don't think it would have affected the episode that much, I guess, is what I'm saying. So, yeah, Margie, good point, and I agree with you. Peter Andreoli... I, sorry if I butchered your last name. <laughs> Says, I was glad that the show added the aspect of PTSD to Claire's character. She's a woman and a human being. She's not a mythical superwoman. Absolutely. I think that that gets lost in translation a lot. And something, honestly, that Outlander tries, and I think does a fairly good job with doing, is making the characters human. Making them make mistakes. Like, yes, you get mad at them and you, th- you say that they're stupid and why would you make that decision? Because they're human beings. They're not perfect. They're not clairvoyant. They can't see into the future. Well, figuratively speaking. <laughs> and just like everybody else, they have to make a decision and sometimes it's the wrong decision. I think that that is the beauty of how the show is written, that they can pull that out of characters and yeah, it makes us mad sometimes as viewers, but you know what, whenever you have an emotional response like that, it means that you're watching a really good piece, that it's not just a fluff piece. It makes you internalize things and think about it, which I appreciate. And the last comment that I have today is from Sarah Lorraine and she Was actually commenting on another post, but I felt that what she had to say was pretty valid, so I went ahead and included it. She says, I feel like it should have been revisited more so when she was back with Frank, meaning Claire's PTSD. She says, All we got was the second when he first saw her and tried to touch her where she flinched with a flashback of Blackjack Randall. But she lived with that particular trauma the rest of her life with Frank which is a huge reason they ended up with him living an open relationship to seek comfort from other women. He needed her love and sought it elsewhere, but also was hoping to ignite her attention. I, too, kind of wish we had seen a little bit more of the PTSD with Claire and Frank when they got back together as far as the whole Blackjack Randall thing. But I can also see why they didn't include it because those first episodes in season three were extremely plot heavy and there was not really any way that they could have included that without taking something else vital away. Those first few episodes, I don't really feel like we had a bit of anything that was unnecessary. And as far as including it in Through a Glass Darkly, I think that Claire, as a character, was already dealing with so much that that little blip with Frank turning into Black Jack and back, I think that that was enough for us to understand that she was struggling with that. But like I said, Claire was already dealing with so much that I don't know it would have been right to throw something else on her plate. So, yeah, I would have liked to see that a little bit more. The. Whiplash, if nothing else, of having a husband that looks like Blackjack Randall, but I can also see why the show didn't do it, so valid point, Sarah, all right, guys. Well, that about wraps up this episode of the Sasnack files, My analysis on two o nine Just suis pray. I hope you enjoyed it, and as always, if you have any thoughts on this episode or any previous episode of the Sasnack files, please reach out on social media on the podcast threads or feel free to shoot me an email at thesassnackfiles at gmail.com. Make sure you head on over to our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram to like and follow. We've got lots of fun stuff going on, as I said in the beginning of the episode. Also had some exciting news in that Diana Gabaldon is almost done writing, go tell the bees that I'm gone. And there was a polarizing post by the Steadicam operator, Mike, on Instagram. He said they are going to start filming season six soon, soon, whatever that means. Some people are saying that he wasn't talking about Outlander and that he was talking about another project, but I do not agree with that. I think he was talking about Outlander, whether soon, soon is within the next couple of weeks or within the next couple of months. Who can say? And with COVID, things can change on the turn of a dime. So it's it's exciting because we know that they're moving forward. And I think that eventually this whole COVID thing, not necessarily that it will blow over, but that the filming industry will figure things out with the Scottish government and that filming will open up. And I think that's probably some of what the holdup has been is the negotiation of safety protocols and what is going to be put in place to protect the workers and all of that. And I think once that is figured out, they will be able to move forward with filming of season six. So rumors are it'll be January. Who can say that hasn't been confirmed by stars or Sony or anything like that? But social media is nifty. Let's put it that way. All the actors are back on their workout regimes. The camera operators are posting. John Bell has even said that late December, early January is their goal and that pre-production is supposed to start in November, meaning like costumes and stuff like that. So whether that is actually legitimate, like I said, has not been confirmed by stars or anything like that. But. I do tend to take the word of people involved directly with the project rather than fan conjecture. So that is what I know. And if I hear anything else, I will for sure let you know as soon as I know anything. Until then, Clanlands comes out in two weeks. And make sure to head over and check out my read along on Instagram if you are looking for something to keep you entertained during Droughtlander. All right, guys, I'm going to check out, but. Stay safe out there, and I will chat at you next week when we are talking 210 Preston Pans. Have a good one, guys. Bye.